Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided underneath the chairs, you can find our passage this morning on page 850, 850. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible that you can read at home, just a personal Bible, uh, then feel free to just take one of the ones underneath the chairs as our gift to you. Uh, We would love for you to have your own personal copy of God's Word uh, because we believe He has spoken to us by His Word, that He has inspired it, that it is without error and authoritative in everything that it intends to communicate to us. Uh, So there is nothing we think more important than for you to have the very words of God uh, accessible to you. Uh, So please take one as our gift to you. Uh, Chapter 14 in the Gospel of Mark marks another major shift or turning point in the story. Uh, You might recall, if you've been sticking along with us, that Jesus has come to Jerusalem back in chapter 11. And it's almost like the story, the narrative, shifted down a gear at that point. Uh, Because Mark has basically uh, been speeding through various miracles, teachings of Jesus, uh, travel, notes, as he's moved about in his incredible ministry. And what we find is that from chapters 11 through 16, the final third of the book, uh, Mark narrates basically one week of Jesus' three-year ministry. Uh, So it's almost like the story slows down like a tour bus uh, around a monument for people to observe uh, more details up close. Mark slows down the narrative for us to see what's going on in the final week of Jesus' life in the city of Jerusalem. And so far... We're about halfway through the week, and the whole narrative has centered around the temple. He has gone into the temple. He has uh, rebuked the temple authorities. He has made prophetic judgments against it, saying it's going to fall. Uh, He has driven out bad practices uh, and had many other tense conversations, we can say, regarding uh, his own authority in doing all of these things and the temple establishment. Uh, Jesus has also made clear that he intends to establish a new temple with stones made up of the new community, new covenant community, himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, chapter 14 then shifts. If temple is the most important thing from those first few chapters in this final third of the book, chapter 14 shifts from the temple to one of the temple's chief functions, sacrifice. Our passage begins what is famously referred to as the Passion Narrative. Uh, And it's the Passion, it's called the Passion Narrative because the Latin word Passion uh, means suffering. And so the Passion Narrative is the story of the suffering of Jesus. Uh, It is the fulfillment of the suffering servant spoken of in Isaiah 53. As he has already, Mark records these events in a way that not only just records history for us, but it draws principles of discipleship as he does for his readers. And with that in mind, let's read our text this morning. Mark 14, 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, 
very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. One thing that's been typical of the Gospel of Mark uh, as we've gone through is the theme of insiders and outsiders. Uh, And what has been clear throughout the story uh, is that in emphasizing that Jesus is not the Messiah that people expected, uh, Mark writes in a way that shows a dramatic reversal of who we'd expect to be on the inside and who we'd expect to be on the outside. Those themes couldn't be clearer in this passage as we see the chief priests and scribes of the very religion Jesus is the Messiah of, not preparing for the Passover celebration, but instead preparing to arrest and kill him. Judas, one of his very own disciples, seeks to betray him. And in between those two details of wicked hostility towards Jesus we see an unnamed woman who anoints him. Uh, This is a literary technique that we have seen a few times employed by Mark called a Markin sandwich, in which he inserts one story inside of another story. You'll notice he introduces the story, tells another story, and then returns to the story he began with. And just like in the past, usually the two stories uh, uh, clarify something either through some kind of illustration or great contrast. Uh, And so just like before, I think the middle section helps us understand the outer section, the bread of the sandwich. And with that in mind, I'd like to begin by drawing your attention to the sacrifice of the woman in verses 3 through 9. If you are a note taker and you want a a main idea for this text, uh, the main idea I would say is this. Because God sovereignly works all things for good, he is worth sacrificing everything for. Because God sovereignly works all things for good, he is worth sacrificing everything for. So point one, the sacrifice of the woman. Jesus has gone back to Bethany. Uh, Bethany was a town about two miles east of the city of Jerusalem on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. And uh, as we've talked about before, many, are, many have journeyed to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. Uh, the population basically quadruples during this time. And so Jerusalem itself just doesn't have the capacity for all of the tourists, you could say. And so many people settle in the neighboring towns, which is why Jesus uh, retreats to Bethany in this case. A Passover itself was a celebration of the deliverance of God that he gave to the Israelites from Egypt the night 
uh, before they left. Uh, You can read about the first Passover meal in Exodus 12 at another time if you want to write that down. But the summary of it is uh, the Lord passed through Egypt as the final plague against them, killing the firstborn of every family. Now, this was warned ahead of time. uh, But then to the Hebrews, he provided uh, some instructions. He instructed them to take a year-old lamb without any blemish and to sacrifice it. Uh, and to smear the blood of this little lamb over the doorposts of their homes. And then when the Lord came through in judgment to take the firstborn, when it would see the blood on the doorpost of a Hebrew home, it would pass over that home knowing blood was already spilled. A substitute was made for the firstborn instead. And so this is what Israel had celebrated every single year from that time. And along with it, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which uh, basically was another instruction. They were instructed to have bread that didn't have any yeast in it to communicate the importance of being ready to leave at any time. Um, The idea was basically you're not going to be conflicted waiting for your bread to rise to take it on you with your journey. You need to be able to leave uh, as soon as possible. And so these things were given to Israel as a reminder each year of this great deliverance he worked in the people's lives. Uh, There were many festivals that basically lasted a week, and so that's why commonly it's referred to as Passover week uh, or the Passover and unleavened bread uh, celebrations. It would have been Wednesday morning that Judas met with the chief priests to betray Jesus, Uh, but it's before we get to Judas Mark wants us to see the sacrifice of this woman, who he leaves anonymous. Uh, We know from John's account that it's actually Mary, the brother of Lazarus. But Mark, I think, wants to communicate intentionally uh, that she's anonymous for his point. He does specify that it's the house of Simon the leper. And we don't really know who that was. (laughs) And so um, what we can learn from the fact that Mark has included it is that it must be someone that was known by Mark's readers, his audience. He was known in the early church. Uh, Now, I think what else it indicates for us is that this guy probably didn't have leprosy at the time of the dinner. You know, come over to my house, we're going to have a great meal, and I've got COVID, by the way. That's just probably not something that happens. Uh, So what it likely implies is that this is someone who had leprosy that Jesus probably healed in his ministry uh, and then came over to his house And he's someone that probably would have been known in the church. And uh, therefore, what we see is actually a little bit of textual credibility as well. Uh, It makes this account uh, verifiable or falsifiable if uh, it makes it verifiable. It would be falsifiable if it was just something like Simon, a very common name. But to have the distinguishing uh, title, Simon the leper, uh, suddenly makes this story very real because people could go and ask him, or they maybe knew him or knew family members to verify it. But something very unusual happens at this dinner party. A woman enters into the house, uh, which would have been considered a breach of Jewish protocol. Uh, So the only time in this day and age that it was really appropriate for a woman to interrupt a meal uh, of men was if she was serving the meal. Uh, But she comes in and anoints him with pure nard, a very expensive kind of ointment, uh, in an alabaster flask we read. Now, all of this is uh, pretty foreign to us. Um, I didn't really know anything about it uh, until I studied it and had to research about it. 
So let me just describe the wonder of this event. Uh, a first century Roman writer named Pliny the Elder said that only the best oil was preserved in alabaster. Uh, alabaster is a white stone from Egypt, much like lime, that was translucent. And the bottle itself was around 12 ounces, maybe 16. Uh, so uh, think about those oil bottles you get at the grocery store. It would have been something kind of like that. And the value of the oil is explained to us in verse 5 when uh, the disciples get angry that she used it up because uh, to say that this is a luxury item is a little bit of a, dis- is a, little bit of a, a um, understatement. They said it could be sold for 300 denarii. Uh, a denarii was, if you'll remember, the coin with Caesar's imprint on it. And that coin was worth a single day's wage. So you work for a whole day, you get one denarii. Uh, So if you just think about it for a moment, there's 365 days in a year. Take away 52 Sabbaths in which someone would not work, and you have generally about a year's salary here represented in this 12-ounce bottle or flask of ointment. Uh, She breaks the jar so that it can't be saved later. All of it is poured out and and anoints Jesus' head. Uh, It's not exactly a direct correlation, of course, Uh, What a a year salary is going to be different from person to person and depending on where you live. Uh, America is a very wealthy country. So based on the census, the average income was around 70,000. Yet the most expensive perfume that we could buy at the mall would probably be around (laughs) 1,200. And it was about half the size. Uh, So for that amount of money, what this flask of oil is worth, you could sell it buy a car, drive that car to Macy's, and then fill up the trunk with their most expensive perfume. And you will have spent about the same amount of money. Uh, but just imagine every single one of your paychecks for an entire year uh, going nowhere except for to something that was about the size of your morning cup of coffee. Uh, scholars note that this perfume was likely uh, some kind of family heirloom because the reality was women during this time They just simply didn't have jobs that would pay them enough to afford something like this, even if they were aggressive savers and lived very modestly. Uh, So this woman poured out a family heirloom kind of item fit for a king over Jesus at this dinner party. Now you have to admit, maybe uh, you feel a little bit like the disciples did towards this woman. Uh, It seems excessive. Why not sell it and give some of the proceeds to the poor? Uh, did, did she really need to pour all of it out? Could she have traded for some less expensive ointment or something like that? Uh, if you remember the feeding of the 5,000, when Jesus says that these people need to be fed, the disciples sarcastically respond, what would you have us do? Go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? Uh, which I think sarcastic, meaning they probably didn't even have that kind of money themselves. Uh, but it was just a ridiculous amount of money. But if 200 denarii can feed 5,000, or maybe 15 if you're counting the women and children, then just imagine how many poor people 300 denarii could have fed. Well, Jesus defends the woman's sacrifice. Look what he says in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has done what she could. That's an amazing statement. And you might notice a striking similarity to another woman that Jesus commended just a few chapters earlier in the temple. The poor widow 
who gave the two smallest coins in the currency circulation. Uh, He said that she had given more than anyone else. He said she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Mark 12, 44. But notice the similarities between these two. They're both unnamed women in Mark's account. Both offerings looked down or despised by the world. Both sacrificing what they have. Both commended by Jesus. And yet the amounts that they give are polar opposites. One gives the smallest amount, the other an exorbitant amount. So what's the point? The point is Jesus is worth giving everything up for. Jesus is of supreme value, worthy of all our worship and praise. And not only is he deserving of all we have, but he is honored by those who sacrifice to their ability within their means, no matter the size of the gift itself. Look at the way Jesus defends her in verses 6 and 7. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. So I think it's a fair question to ask here, right? Is Jesus telling them not to give to the poor? Does this mean that we should give everything to the church and forget about the poor because we're never going to solve the problem of poverty in the world? Absolutely not. That is, that is not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus cares about the poor and the sick and the diseased and the outcasts among whom he has spent much of his ministry. The disciples probably thought that giving to the poor was the best use of money uh, because it was so important to the Jewish faith. It was so important to obeying God's commands. In fact, Jesus himself, right, he said that uh, the second to the greatest commandment was loving your neighbor as yourself. So the point is not whether or not helping the poor is a good cause. It's about Jesus as the supreme object of our worship. And if the poor are so important, then how important must Jesus be for him to take priority over them? And just think about the pedestal that Jesus is putting himself on by saying that, uh, by, by saying that uh, he is more worthy of a cause than giving to the poor. No mere man is worthy of that kind of recognition. Uh, It is, I think, a direct claim to his identity in emphasizing worshiping him as a fulfillment as the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The other reason Jesus gives is his imminent departure. Uh, Jesus won't always, he won't be with them much longer. Just another day and he's going to be taken and killed. And I think this is the primary purpose of Jesus' statements, but I can't help but feel like there's also a hidden rebuke of the disciples behind these words. Because it's so easy to point to others, right, and say they should be doing X, Y, and Z with whatever it is they have or critiquing the decisions that they make. And I think when people do that, there's an assumption that I would have done it better. I would have done, I'm thinking about this the right way, right? But Jesus points out that the poor are always among us or among the disciples, meaning it's not like we don't have opportunity to help them. It's almost like he's saying or exposing some kind of hypocrisy in their hearts, perhaps some of ours as well, as he tells them 
The poor are already among you. What are you doing now currently? What will change when we do inherit, say, for example, a, a thicker financial safety blanket or some kind of costly family heirloom? Will we then, when we get to that point, decide to treat the poor really well? Friends, we are to care for the poor out of our love for others and our love for Jesus because Jesus loved us though we were poor. It's not an either-or. In fact, the more love we have for Jesus, I would argue, the better we will take care of the poor among us. Now, John's account does give us more information here. John, in his gospel, does say that it's actually Judas who makes this remark, and that he doesn't say it because he actually cares about the poor. He says it, in fact, because he was a thief, and he cared only about the money. But this woman, and I think it's important to note, this woman was not anointing Jesus uh, because she wanted to gain his favor. Uh, She wasn't anointing him to earn his love or anything like that. She was anointing him simply because of her love to him. Well, how can we apply this example of the woman's sacrifice to our lives today? Certainly, we should be on guard from uh, despising others Uh, When we ourselves have shortcomings, uh, we should instead ask why we aren't willing to sacrifice uh, like the woman does in this story. And and we must ask the Spirit to change our hearts to a more sincere devotion. But another point of application is this. Let go of stuff. Let go of stuff. Stuff is not a fancy word. (laughs) It's not a theological, technical word. It's not an intellectual one. It's a broad term that pretty much applies to everything that we desire or own. And it might be a crude way to refer to the things that you think are really valuable or are precious to you. That's a little bit intentional, too. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I'm sure that I am uh, just as prone, if not more so, to materialism than you. Uh, But believe me when I say this, it's just stuff. It's just stuff. Uh, This alabaster flask, even, of pure nard, as expensive and as costly as it was, was also just stuff. Uh, The things of this world uh, are given to us by God to enjoy and to steward well, that's true, but we can't take them with us when we die. So we should hold things loosely. They are not ultimate. So beware of setting your heart on stuff. Uh, Second... Have a religion of the extreme kind and prepare for the world to scoff at you for it. Have have a religion of the extreme kind and prepare for the world to scoff at you for it. I think it's a sad truth uh, that even those of us who profess to follow Christ fear living in a way that is so starkly different uh, from the world. We're very thankful for missionaries we hear of who leave everything to take the gospel overseas Uh, We wonder whether those who risk their lives on the mission field are foolish. Uh, We pray for others who are persecuted, but we're unsure at times if we would be able to uh, stand faithful through persecution for Christ. Our fear of man looms large at times. Uh, We set a low bar for ourselves in terms of godliness. And at times, I think the radical discipleship that we see in the Bible, like this woman seems ancient 
and unrealistic for the modern man. One of my favorite pastors uh, in the 19th century, a man by the name of J.C. Ryle, said this about living a life of extreme discipleship. He said, there's never lacking a generation of people who depreciate what they call extremes in religion and are incessantly recommending what they term moderation and the service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and affections to the pursuit of worldly things, they do not blame him. If he gives himself up to the service of money, pleasure, or politics, they find no fault. But if the same man devotes himself and all he has to Christ, they can scarcely find words to express their sense of his folly. He's beside himself. He is righteous over much. He's an extreme man. In short, they regard it as a waste. Sounds like the disciples. Why did she waste this? Let charges, Ryle goes on, like these not disturb us if we hear them made against us, because we strive to serve Christ. Let us bear them patiently and remember that they are as old as Christianity itself. Let us pity those who, walk, who make such charges against believers. They show plainly that they have no sense of obligation to Christ. A cold heart makes a slow hand. If a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think anything too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? He will fear wasting time, talents, money, and affections on the things of this world. He will not be afraid of lavishing them on his Savior. He will fear going into extremes about business, money, politics, or pleasure. But he will not be afraid of doing too much for Christ. To have a religion of an extreme kind means a kind of holistic approach to following Jesus. Coming to church is an activity. Uh, so is fellowship with others or taking the Lord's Supper or baptism, all of these things which are good, good signs, clearly. But following Jesus is a daily heart decision to take up your cross and follow him. It means taking small sins seriously too. The world will not understand this lifestyle. It will think you're wasting your life and restricting yourself from pleasure. Uh, but what they don't realize is that Jesus is far more valuable than anything in this life. His presence is worth trading everything for. And that's why Jesus says this woman did a beautiful thing for him. Look what he says about her actions in verse 9. He says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. By her, sacrifice, her sacrificial love for Jesus in this instance, her faith is immortalized. And she has shown the world how worthy Christ is. We may not all be remembered. We don't need to be. But recognize that the spiritual things you prioritize in this life last for eternity. Training in godliness. Bringing others to Christ. Obeying God's commands. Putting God's word in your heart. All of these things draw you closer to God and prepare you for an eternity with Him. Like the temple, the world will pass away but the word of God endures forever. Why not spend your life doing the things that matter in eternity? Uh, J.C. Ryle has another 
good quote that I, I won't mention here in length, but I'll paraphrase it for you. He says, there are those who look forward to heaven, but they don't engage in these acts or training of godliness. And he simply says, what will you enjoy when you get to heaven? Heaven will not be fit for you because you enjoy the things of the world. You must love and cherish Christ because his presence is what makes heaven heaven. Well, that's the sacrifice of the woman. And now we look at the sacrifice of Judas, a sacrifice of a different kind. Mark clearly inserts the story of the woman in the middle of Judas's betrayal to show the differences between a real follower and a fake follower. A real follower counts the world as lost for the sake of Christ. A fake follower, like Judas, prefers the world over Jesus. The woman sought an opportunity to lather Jesus with expensive perfume. Judas sought an opportunity to make a profit. Many passages in Mark's gospel so far have made the uh, important uh, principle of the need for a heart change when following Christ. Jesus has warned many times about the danger of hypocrisy and superficial faith, that is, uh, faith on a surface level, faith on the outside only. And the terrible reality is that despite all his teachings, one of his very own disciples betrays him in the end. Judas was with Jesus through almost every part of his journey. Uh, He had witnessed him cast out demons, heal lepers, the paralytic, uh, cure the deaf and the blind, walk on water, feed thousands of people. And the fact that someone so close to Jesus would fall away should terrify us. And I think that's one of the reasons that Paul uh, exhorts Christians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because if someone from Jesus' own 12 disciples can fall to the allure of money, then how do we know that we won't do the same or others we love? Notice the initiative that Judas takes in this example. In verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Up to this point, the thing that has stopped the Jewish leaders uh, from arresting and destroying Jesus has pretty much been the crowd surrounding him at all times. Uh, And if you didn't know how this story ends, you might have actually wondered up to this point, how in the world does Jesus end up getting arrested since he's had such a dynamic ministry? Mark tells us in the first two verses the strategy of the chief priests and scribes to arrest him by stealth and kill him for fear of an uproar. Jesus did have incredible influence during a time where the city was full of people who likely were exposed or at least heard about his ministry elsewhere and came into the city. So it's not the most ideal time for a public arrest. So the only way they can get to Jesus is if one of his close followers can tell them where he is and properly identify him when they come to him. Verse 11 says they were glad, promised to give him money. And we know how the story goes. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, or perhaps I should say a mere 30 pieces. His master, his Lord, his friend. Do you feel the difference between this woman and Judas? 
She's willing to break a flask of pure nard and use it all on Jesus because she loved him and considered him worthy. And Judas, for a much smaller amount as far as monetary value is concerned, is willing to hand Jesus over to death. He's the one John says was greedy. He was in charge of the purse of the disciples and stole from it. He was the one who was indignant, along with others, at the woman because he wanted the money for himself. He didn't want it to go to the poor. He loved money so much that he literally gave Jesus up for it. But this was not a a decision that he made overnight or thoughtlessly. He fed his desire for money for a long period of time until his desire grew and gave birth to an even bigger sin. This is how sin works in our lives. Proverbs says that. Desire gives birth to sin. Judas desired money, and he gave into those desires so much that it had a grip on his life that he sought an opportunity. Dear friends, Satan will try to convince you that it's okay to give in to small sins. Once or twice won't hurt anything in the long run. Uh, But we must not think that we are so strong as that we'll be able to resist the the larger temptation when it comes when we consistently or frequently give in to the smaller temptations. I have a uh, complicated relationship with the snooze button. Uh, I relied, I had, I would say, a frequent uh, connection with the snooze button in college. I trusted in it. It let me down at times. Uh, And now I'm at the point where I have not used the snooze button in over eight years. Uh, Because what I noticed, at least about myself, (laughs) it's fine if you use the snooze button. (laughs) My wife and I have a disagreement about this. All right. Uh, (laughs) When I used the snooze button, I realized at a certain point that all I was doing was training my brain to go back to sleep after hearing my alarm. Rather than my body training itself to get up when it heard that sound, I was training myself to hit a quick button and then let myself drift back to sleep uh, until eventually uh, I was not punctual or things like that. Uh, So now I don't trust the snooze button at all. But the point is, giving in to small sins can be like a spiritual snooze button in your life. Uh, It it weakens your resistance and ability to choose the greater joy over the temporary and fleeting one. Uh, This is why we must work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, There's a beautiful doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that teaches that the Lord will sustain the faith of true believers. He'll give us grace to run the race but we work it out for fear of deceiving ourselves and for fear of facing God's judgment uh, that we deserve. Satan doesn't mind if you come to church every week so long as your heart doesn't belong to Jesus. He would love for you to feel comfortable and safe so long as you love stuff more than God. Friends, fix your eyes on Jesus. We should ask ourselves a a question that Piper made famous when thinking about heaven. He says, "If, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, 
Could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Friends, for those of us who love Jesus, the answer must be no. We must be like Moses instead. When the Lord told the people to go into the land without him, Moses said, what is the promised land without your presence? Oh, friends, the beautiful thing about heaven is the very presence of Christ himself, perfect communion with him. There is a little bit of Judas in every one of us. Uh, because when we sin, we do the same thing as Judas, I think on a, on a much smaller scale. When you think about his actions, he decided to love something more than Jesus in that moment. Uh, we decide to trade what, what he has promised is good for us for what we think would be better. And those decisions are like little mini Judases in our hearts, choosing to love something more than him. One pastor said that Judas is like a microcosm of humanity. Uh, and it's true that because we are born into our sinful nature, after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we all have gone astray chasing the desires of our wicked hearts, earning for ourselves God's righteous and good punishment. But God in his mercy sent his son Jesus, the very one betrayed in these verses, though he was innocent, in order to take our punishment upon himself on the cross. He rose three days later, defeating death once and for all. And so he calls all people to turn away from sin, away from those desires, and to trust him as king. This is the good news of Jesus, that we don't have to be slave to our desires anymore. Even though we are all like Judas, we can be forgiven. And if you have trusted in Christ, your sins are forgiven already. Dear friend, if you are realizing through this text that you might have idols in your life, uh, things that you would not want to let go of if you had to for the sake of Christ, let go of them today. Let go of them today. Don't trade your soul for a fleeting and finite comfort. Ask the Lord to change your desires and resolve to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. <clears throat> if you would uh, like to know what, what that might look like for you in your life in particular uh, and have more questions about that, please feel free to talk to me afterwards at the door. I would love to talk to you more about giving your life over to Jesus. The woman, because of her great love for Jesus was willing to sacrifice something extremely valuable because she knew that nothing, no matter how valuable, compared to the value of Christ himself. And Judas, because of his great love for money, was willing to hand over the very Messiah himself to his death, making a shipwreck of his faith. Both sacrifices were great, both very costly, one for good and the other for evil. But there is another sacrifice greater than both of these in this passage. It's the sacrifice of Jesus himself. You might be asking, what sacrifice? He was lathered with perfume. He's a victim of betrayal in these verses. Well, the answer is in uh, both the opening two verses and in verse 8. Jesus says of the woman's anointing, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand. For burial. 
Jesus makes an obvious reference to the fact that he's going to be buried soon. Uh, criminal execution, which he will receive, uh, normally does not get an anointing. Uh, so it is just an interesting fact that the woman provided an anointing that he otherwise would not have received. He's already predicted his betrayal, death, and resurrection in the gospel multiple times. He even names the chief priests and scribes in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And Mark only mentions the woman anointing his head, but we know from John's gospel she also anointed his feet and likely his hands. Uh, Given the amount of oil, probably his whole body was being prepared as a sacrifice for us. Verses 1 and 2, the way that Mark introduces this story tells us that he is the true Passover lamb, without blemish, prepared for by God, the way that he orchestrated these events to occur. This is the reason for the sandwich. Judas certainly did what was right in his own eyes, yet it's clear that Mark is emphasizing in this passage the way our sovereign God uses even the attempts and the desires and the actions of the wicked to accomplish his will. In this way, we know he works all things out for good, even despite evil plotting and actions against him. Little did they know the Lord would use their choices to fulfill what he had predicted about him, that he would suffer, stricken and afflicted. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, bearing our iniquities, in order to make many accounted righteous. In the original Passover, the Lord took the firstborn of the families and Israel was given a substitute in a lamb without blemish. In the fulfillment of the Passover, the Lord himself provides another sacrifice, his own firstborn for us. Everything in this passage points to Christ at the center. He's the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world And it's by his sacrifice that the Lord passes over all who trust in him. Since he is without blemish, our sin is atoned for. See how much richer a sacrifice Christ himself is, even more than this costly perfume. And then just notice the parallels between the two. Instead of a stone flask, his body was broken for us. Instead of pure nard, His blood was poured out. And just as the Passover lamb created a pleasing aroma to the Lord, so too does the body of the Messiah, covered in rich ointment. And as we read earlier from Ephesians 5, 2, we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ himself is the great offering, the great sacrifice, the Passover lamb. We walk away from this text knowing two things. That God is sovereignly working all things out according to his good will. And that Jesus is worth losing anything and everything for. It's my prayer that we would see Christ as infinitely more valuable than anything on this earth. That we wouldn't trade anything for him. That we would devote ourselves to him out of love. Because of the love he first showed us. Because God sovereignly works all things for good, he is worth sacrificing everything for. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, your word says, your son has said, that those who are forgiven much love much. And we have been forgiven much. Lord, we give you praise because of the blood poured out by the Lamb, your Son, Jesus, who gave himself as a propitiation, a ransom, atoning for our sins on the cross. Lord, we give you thanks that you have passed over us in your mercy and in your kindness because of the sacrifice you provided. So we pray that we would love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.